Father God, we have started our service by forgetting ourselves, looking to you, and welcoming you with praise. King Jesus, you are welcome here today. It's just a joy for us to gather together, to throw the doors of the building open, to lift our voices and our hearts to you and to, to welcome you. Lord, when we uh, look at the, the kind of king that you were and the rule that you bring, we just thank you all the more. Lord, we live in a time when we are suspicious of our leaders, where we struggle to submit to authority Lord, often for good reason. Uh, We have seen that power corrupts, that people who are are given authority often are, are changed by it. Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, the one who carries all power and authority and yet is the king of love, a servant of all. Lord, when he came into Jerusalem, he came not on a, on a stallion, a war horse, not at the head of an army, but riding on a donkey while the families and children welcomed him with their praise. Lord, we thank you that you're a good king, that you're a king whom we can follow, to whom we can entrust ourselves and our entire lives Lord, forgive us for the times when we have struggled to do that. When we've resisted your kingship, mostly because we'd prefer to be kings and queens ourselves. When we've resisted giving you the throne of our lives because we're too comfortable to be on it ourselves. Lord, we pray that this Easter season, you would win our hearts once more as we see you in all your, your love and your grace and your kindness, all your glory, all your self-giving. And Lord, we pray that this morning as we gather again, we might just know your presence with us. We've been talking for some weeks about what it means to be people and a community that's full of your spirit. So, Lord, come and be with us today. Let us know of your presence. Let us know that by the time we leave that we've been with you, that we've heard your voice, that we've received from you new life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read a a full account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 19. It's on page 1054. Luke chapter 19. We're going to to begin reading there at verse 28. 
After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, because the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known in this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of God. We've just read here together Luke's account of the triumphal entry, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And one thing that I suppose I've become more aware of over the years is that this is a staged event. It doesn't just happen this way by accident or without design. Luke doesn't make a whole deal of that connection, but um, Matthew does in his gospel. He points back to an old, one of the ancient prophecies, Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah says there, See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a prophecy hundreds of years old. And Jesus, whenever he chooses to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, he makes that prophecy all about him. He is the king that Zechariah is talking about. And the crowd, at least some of them, seem to get that. And that's, that's why it plays out the way it does. They've read the signs. And so Luke tells us in verse 38 that they, they start chanting like a crowd at a football match, a little bit like what we tried to do there earlier, to welcome this king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So when you read these gospel accounts and when you teach Sunday school and when you lead the children's part of a service like I've just done, Palm Sunday stands as this celebration. It's a carnival. It's a Mardi Gras. Welcome. It's a Lord Mayor show. Welcome. Here comes Jesus. We love Jesus. Let's welcome him into our city with singing, with waving of branches, with throwing down of our clothes. And it's only when we pay a little bit more attention to the text we see that it's not actually only working at that level. The Pharisees, verse 39, aren't in on the party. And they tell Jesus, shut these guys up. Stop this racket, this noise, this drawing attention to yourself and uh, and even the Jewish people in the city. You see, these guys are politically astute, and they know that in a Roman-occupied city, to arrive proclaiming yourself a king is not a good idea. It's the sort of thing that could get you killed. But Jesus' response, he doesn't seem to mind, doesn't seem to want to go undercover, let them shout, he says, because if they don't shout, then the, then the very pavements that they're standing on will start to, start to sing my praise. What Jesus is saying is, for years I've kept my full identity hidden. I've refused whenever they've invited me and forced me, tried to force me to be their king, I've refused to do it. But today it's different. Today they're welcoming me as their king and I'm going along with it because that's who I am. Of course, as we read on the story, we discover that the Pharisees were right. Coming into Jerusalem on a, a horse, proclaiming yourself king, The events of the next few days in the city, those were enough to get Jesus killed. But even on Palm Sunday, with this euphoric crowd, it doesn't feel like an accident. It feels to me as though Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And, and of course, now that we think about it, he had told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, that he would suffer, and that he would die. So we can be sure that he knew exactly what he was doing. And then, then we back up from that and we say, well, why? It begs the question, why does Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a death wish? Why would he choose to do that? Why would he allow the tensions in the incoming week to escalate to the point where he's arrested, corruptly tried, and then crucified? What's the point? At this point, I'd invite you to join with me and flick over to Acts chapter 10. We've looked briefly at the, the story. This is the passage which I preached on a couple of weeks ago about Peter and Cornelius, page 1105. So one of my frustrations in the Acts series is that we've had to move so fast that we haven't had time to pay attention 
or, or much attention to some of the great sermons that are preached in Acts. Uh, so this is a sermon that Peter preached, if you remember. Um, remember the setting? The Gentile Roman centurion Cornelius says to the devout Jewish Peter, come to my house, uh, even though Gentiles don't normally have Jews in their houses, come to my house and tell me about Jesus Christ. So that's the setting. And, and we remember from a couple of weeks ago, and we see it there in the chapter, that Cornelius gathers his family, his friends. It actually says it's a large crowd. So somewhere in his biggest room, there's a, a large crowd rammed in, and Peter is speaking to them. Peter's sermon, it begins, the sermon proper begins in verse 34. He, he talks, first of all, about this revelation that he's had, that it turns out that God isn't just for the Jews, that he's for all people, including Roman centurions and their family. Peter's preaching this sermon to a crowd, you know, hanging from the rafters. You can picture them. But then notice what he says in verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So he's using the phrase good news, that's our word gospel, and he's relating it to peace through Jesus Christ. The gospel, Peter says, is God's good news that there's peace and it comes through Jesus Christ. I think this is a heavily edited version of his sermon. I think I said this to you. Otherwise, it's a pretty short one. And we don't know how Peter developed that theme of peace. It's not immediately evident. In verses 37 to 42, he, he mostly just tells the Jesus story, tells of his experiences of being in the company of Jesus. It, it's almost just a, a, a narrative of, of those times. We did notice a couple of weeks ago in verse 39 that whenever he talks about Jesus' death, he uses this phrase by hanging him on a tree. So this was Peter's way to make sure that a Jewish person, but also a Roman who knew what a crucifixion was, knew that Jesus' death was a moment when he fell under a curse. The Romans were cursing him in the best way they knew how. This is how you humiliate an enemy of Rome. But in the Jewish culture, to be hung on a tree is to be under God's curse. So Jesus, we know in his death, is somehow cursed. As for what this thing about peace is all about, Peter keeps that right to the end of his sermon. It's his closing remark, verse 43. He says there that all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the peace that Jesus Christ brings. Forgiveness. That's the good news that Peter is presenting, that we, each one of us, can be forgiven. We're going to think just for a few moments about forgiveness this morning. Whenever we forgive somebody a debt that they have against us or an offense that they have caused us, 
That means that we don't require them to pay. If they did pay, if they paid us back for the thing that they'd stolen for us, or if they somehow made right the the offensive action, then forgiveness isn't really necessary because the, the debt has been paid. We've received our due, our recompense. Forgiveness is different than that. Forgiveness requires grace. If you injure me, then grace lets that go. I don't sue you. I don't come after you to get even. Grace gives a person something that they don't deserve. And that's, I think, why the word forgiveness has the word give in it. It's something that we must give. We, rather than needing to get something, to get back for the the debt that we're owed or the injury we've been caused, we say, no, I'm going to give. I'm going to give something that... that, um, I don't need to get even. I'm going to give you forgiveness. So this is what God does for us in Jesus Christ. And it's what Peter's talking about with Cornelius. He says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is what God loves doing. God was always a forgiver. It it didn't start with Jesus So in the Old Testament, there's some wonderful forgiving stories. David gives us one of the most memorable images in Psalm 103. He says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've taken your transgressions from you. I want to get rid of the things that stand between you and me. I want to forgive. So God loves to forgive And the gospel is about the forgiveness that God offers us in Jesus Christ. Just wonderful. God's forgiveness raises a question, though. And maybe the best way to to sense this, to to get emotionally connected with it, is to, to consider what happens when forgiveness is given in the wrong way. So, somebody has murdered a member of my family, or they've raped a member of my family, and they're, they're found, and they're brought to court, and they stand trial. And the judge... The evidence is presented, and then the judge gives his verdict. You are guilty. That murder, that rape, you you did that. But did I hear you say you're sorry? Well, that's okay then. Um, And you say you won't do it again? Well, that's okay then. On you go. Um, Folks, if you can feel yourself in the aggrieved end of that arrangement, then you'll understand the problem that there is with forgiveness. 
It's not enough for the victim to have a forgiving spirit. The, the state in this scenario is responsible to see that justice is done. Our, our lives, our whole universe requires that justice is done. And folks, it's like that with God too. Whenever we sin against him, our sin's serious, all of it. It's, a, it's an affront against the one beautiful, pure, glorious standard in the world, and that's God's very character, his very person. So God's justice can't simply turn a blind eye to my sin and to yours any more than a human judge can, can say to that, that criminal, you're sorry? Okay, off you go. This injury that we do needs to be repaired. God's glory, even in his forgiving, needs to be demonstrated. And and God, because he is just, his glory shines as he maintains his justice. So, folks, this is why Jesus Christ suffered and died. So that a just God, because God will always remain just, will forgive my sin because he loves and he loves to forgive. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul puts it like this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Folks, this forgiveness, it costs us nothing. It's a gift. We talked about that. Forgiveness is the gift that the offended party gives. That's what's happening here. God gives. But the forgiveness costs the giver. In this case, will it cost Jesus everything? It costs him his very life. Peter reminds us in this passage that we're looking at, this this sermon. He says two things. He said they killed him by hanging him on a tree, but that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We're about to come to a table here and we're going to remember the the death of Jesus, his suffering. And we've seen today that he, the reason he died is that we might be forgiven, every one of us. Maybe you don't feel worthy. If if there's one, you know, whenever I talk to people about communion in their homes, and when the most common comment I hear from people who don't take, take communion is, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. God can't accept me. Sister, brother, this, this really is for you. 
Everyone who believes, we're told. He knows about your life of rebellion. How you've lived as though God didn't exist and very happy to live that way. He knows about that, but you can come today to this table. He knows about the anger that you carry. But we can come, every one of us. He knows that we're besotted with wealth and his good gifts and that they trip us up all the time. The gifts more more in our eye than, than the giver. He knows this. And this forgiveness is for everyone. He knows about the lust in our hearts. He knows about the pride that makes us feel good enough, that makes all this chat about forgiveness just wash over us like water off a duck's back. That's for other people. I don't need forgiveness. That's how sure I am of my own righteousness. He knows about that too. He knows all the ways in which we're wasting our lives and failing to be the men and women he made us to be. And he says, everyone, you can come and find forgiveness. That's why I came. That's why I died. That's why I rode into Jerusalem and let them beat the living daylights out of me. So that everyone can be forgiven. Let's sing together.